CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. New COVID infections in the U.S. spiked 81% in the last month. The FDA is expected to approve COVID booster shots today for people with compromised immune systems. Dr. Anthony Fauci tells CBS this morning he believes it's just a matter of time until everyone who's been vaccinated needs one. We're following cohorts of individuals, elderly, younger individuals, people in nursing homes, to determine if, in fact, the level of protection is starting to attenuate, and when it does get to a certain level, we will be prepared. More government workers will have to get vaccinated. Health Secretary Javier Becerra says shots will be required for more than 25,000 Department of Health and Human Services employees. The Department of Veterans Affairs was the first federal agency to require vaccines. The face of this country is changing. We'll get a new snapshot when 2020 census numbers come out in a few hours. The data are expected to show dozens of counties, mostly in the South and Southwest, no longer have a majority racial or ethnic group. And the non-Hispanic white population is expected to shrink for the first time in census history. The numbers are expected to show fewer than half of U.S. residents under 18 are white while more than three-quarters of those 65 and older are. Preliminary numbers released in April show population at its slowest growth rate since the Great Depression. Peter King, CBS News. Torrential rain and 60-mile-an-hour winds slammed the upper Midwest, leaving Melissa long in the dark in Elkhart, Indiana. The wind was pretty heavy when it came through. It was very loud. A lot of us in Elkhart are without power right now. Utility officials say crews are working around the clock to restore electricity to more than a million customers. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has captured a 10th provincial capital, this one less than 100 miles from Kabul. CBS's Roxana Sabiri is there. The fighting has forced hundreds of thousands of people to flee in recent months. Many are coming to Kabul seeking safety. They've left behind their homes, their belongings, and even loved ones killed in the fighting. And now they say there's nowhere else to go. Experts believe the country's capital could fall in a matter of weeks as the U.S prepares to withdraw the last of its troops by the end of the month. New jobless claims dropped for the third week in a row. 375,000 signed up last week. That's 12,000 fewer than the week before. Economist Joel Naroff says there are still lots of help wanted signs posted. But the business is setting records for the number of job openings which exceed the number of people looking for work. There is every reason to think that the pace of unemployment claims will slow going forward. This is CBS News. CBS News Radio is your home for breaking news. With our team of reporters around the country and the world, we give you the coverage you can trust. If you have unfiled taxes or are in debt to the IRS, this is important news. The IRS just rolled out a new program to help struggling taxpayers more easily resolve their tax problems. It's called the Taxpayer Relief Initiative, and it opens up powerful new options for people looking to get back on the right track with the IRS. And no one knows this program like the professionals at Optima Tax Relief, America's most trusted tax resolution company. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients and have the expertise and experience to help you. One easy call to Optima can start the process, helping to put an end to your worries of wage garnishment, asset seizure, and other aggressive IRS actions. Make today the beginning of your fresh start with the IRS. Call the experts at Optima Tax Relief now for your free confidential consultation. Call 800-343-6460. 800-343-6460. Optima Tax Relief. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. 
A big league pitcher showed some dominance for the ages last night. Big night for Milwaukee Brewers right-hander Corbin Burns. 0-2 pitch and a swing and a miss. There it is. Corbin Burns ties a major league record for consecutive strikeouts. Ten straight Ks on Bally Sports, tying Aaron Nola of the Phillies, who did it earlier this year, and Tom Seaver of the Mets, who had the mark all alone for decades. Burns finished with 15 strikeouts in the 10-0 Brewers win over the Cubs. Steve Kathan, CBS News. The king of Mexican ranchera music is struggling. Posted to his Instagram says 81-year-old Grammy winner Vicente Fernandez is in the hospital on a ventilator after a serious fall that caused a spinal injury. As doctors say his brain function is intact, they expect his mobility to improve. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. Today's federal newscast, a federal court has put significant boundaries around a wide-ranging lawsuit alleging sexual misconduct and financial malfeasance by the former leader of the biggest federal labor union. Wednesday's ruling dismissed many of the claims the plaintiffs made against the American Federation of Government Employees and its former president, J. David Cox. Cox and AFGE still face some potential liability, but the court dismissed several counts in the lawsuit. The Defense Department is preparing to require vaccinations for all active duty service members. Now other military components say they will follow suit. The Coast Guard and the National Guard say they're prepared to require service members to take the COVID-19 vaccination once the Pentagon mandates the shot. The two components combined would require about half a million more people to take the inoculation. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he wants to make the vaccine mandatory by mid-September at the latest. To date, about 74% of active duty Coast Guard members are vaccinated. Scott Massioni. Federal News Network. Find these stories and more at federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Eric White. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. News there are almost 99,000 feds with more than a million dollars in their 401k accounts plays well in Washington, D.C. But how about places like Peoria or Monkey's Eyebrow, Kentucky? This is Federal News Network Senior Correspondent Mike Cosey. In major federal centers and near military bases, word that members of the federal family are smart and doing well is usually welcome. But in places where bureaucrats are demonized, and there are lots of them, in locales where the government's considered all too powerful and evil, the thought of mere civil servants having huge thrift savings plan accounts is just too much. How come they get such a great deal, people ask? The fact they're investing their own money and trying to guarantee independence in retirement is lost on some. And some federal workers, though they love the TSP updates, don't want other people to see them because they think it may hurt the plan. So is there a solution? Check out my column and all our email alerts at federalnewsnetwork.com slash alerts. I'm Mike Causey. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Melinda Rogers, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Chief Information Officer at the Justice Department. Melinda, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be back. Today, we're talking a lot about cybersecurity, and which is great because not only are you at the Justice Department as the CIO, but you also wore that other hat as the CISO. So I think there's plenty to talk to around cybersecurity. And let's just start at the beginning of the conversation. Today, cybersecurity feels a lot different than it was three months ago, which feels a lot different than it was a year ago. Walk me through a little bit about how cybersecurity has evolved for the Justice Department over the last year. With cybersecurity, it's really an industry that is constantly evolving. So while it's easy for us to point back to the 
pretty drastic change almost overnight from March of last year, where we went from going into the office into a full telework uh, posture. We have done a lot of things to support that full telework posture, but really with cybersecurity, it's never a dull moment. We're constantly on the lookout for threats, whether it's from nation states or just a lone bad actor. And we're looking at ways to continue to evolve our security stack and figure out how should we be protecting our assets while enabling the mission to continue. So if you were to ask me whether anything specific had changed in the last 12 months, I would say not particularly, other than we really had to move even faster on deciding uh, what our risk posture should be at and what it should look like as we look at opening new channels up or opening up new applications because we no longer have the luxury of coming into an office or coming into a facility where there are four walls around us. We have to really look at to what degree can we accept the risk of enabling a particular line of communication or connection and allow the mission to continue. So I would say the speed has actually increased even more than what it was operating at already. But again, it comes back to balancing security with operation. It always is about balancing those two. We have to be able to maximize both. We have to maximize our security posture, but we cannot do that at the sacrifice of operations. And I would say within the last 12 months, we're really pushed to do that even faster, taking on a calculated risk and making sure that we have good compensating controls in place to mitigate those risks. Interesting you talk about, if you ask what changed, not a whole lot, but but the speed side, and I think we'll, we'll talk about that in just in a second. Was the Justice Department, generally speaking, set up to do remote work? Did you feel like you had all the pieces and parts in place to say, all right, Melinda and her staff is working from home, beyond maybe the classified information that you couldn't get to, everything else you could do with some tweaks? Answer is definitely yes. I think we were there. Certainly, no, none of us expected this wholesale change overnight, uh, practically, but we were, all the end users were mostly on uh, laptops, not just for the headquarters component, but also ATF, uh, DEA, a lot of people are already using laptops. So it's a matter of making sure people can come in during those beginning weeks of maximum telework to be able to sort of safely take their equipment home and be able to set up uh, their work from home. We did work very closely with a lot of our vendors before the maximum telework order actually came down. We worked with our telecommunications provider to make sure that they give us maximum bandwidth they can support. I know they were certainly trying to support all of their customers as well. So I really appreciate those that really stepped up to help help, help excuse me, justice to make sure we, at the time, double our bandwidth to be able to support this maximum telework posture for all of our field offices. We worked with our vendor that provided our service desk support, knowing that there's gonna be a huge surge in call volume as people take their equipment home and try to sign on for the first time. How do we shorten that call wait time and still be able to get to everybody? And again, they have the same demands from their other customers too. So I would say it was definitely a, it took a village effort to get all the things ready and supported. I feel like I was very fortunate in that We've had good vendor partners to support us as we transition into that stage. And also at Justice, we've had good programmatics, if I may say, in place already, where when the time came, we weren't looking at 
extremely antiquated equipment or switches, we were in a position where we can switch over and continue operating. Yes, the first couple of weeks were a little rough. The wait times were longer on the service desk, and but we were able to sustain operation. Our connectivity stayed up. We had a new site that was uh, planning to be stood up to support remote access. We were planning on retiring one of our sites, but instead of retiring that, we just kept all the sites up, knowing that we're going to have this massive surge in volume. So it was uh, good work from the staff, some good luck, wonderful support from the vendor community, and it worked out for us. Obviously, good news. Uh, and I love the fact that a little bit of good luck plays into that. You recognize that important piece to it. Sometimes it's, it's timing, sometimes it's a little luck, and sometimes it's a lot of both. Yes. I know over the last three to five years, Justice has really been moved a lot of their applications, a lot of their systems to the cloud. Did that play a role in this successful change, the, the remote work? And, and of, of course, the answer is yes, but how did those pieces fit together? As we continue to look at moving our workloads to the cloud, and as we have been doing that, we have been very uh, deliberate in terms of which workloads we move out. We certainly started off with some of the low-risk, low, low systems, as we call FISMA, FIPS low systems, where if the data gets lost or breached, it's not the end of the world. It might be a little bit of disruption. So we started that, but we started that journey probably about six, seven years ago at this point. So we've been at this for a while. I think overall, if I may go back to, we've been able to do the successful transition because we have good infrastructure in place. We have good component offices with good IT offices that work well with the department too, that it's been an all-in effort. So we have the good fundamental, we had good bone structure, we had good fundamentals in place. So that when the, the transition came, it was a matter of continuing the course that we are on with some adjustments and be able to proceed smoothly. Our cloud partners continue to support us. They were one of the folks that we worked with before the maximum telework came into play, where we had the conversation, we're about to surge, things are about to get ugly, are you ready for us, right? So we had those conversations with them as well. And I would say overall, it's been a tremendous journey on all fronts. I would not attribute it to a just a cloud migration success, but I think it's overall the good people that we've had working with us along the way that allowed us for, uh, that enabled us for this uh, relatively smooth transition. And the security piece to that as well, that's built into the infrastructure. I get that. At the same time, was there any concerns on your end that, or did you hear concerns, maybe not from your office, but from your boss's boss's office about, well, how safe are we if we're in the cloud? Is, is you know, I, I've heard the cloud can be full of challenges or whatever. I mean, did you, were, were people pretty, your, your bosses, the, the, non, the non-techies, they were okay with it? I think everybody was, because we had been on this cloud journey, like I said, for a couple of years, even before the, the mass telework, I would say everybody, including leadership, they're used to are, I would describe some sort of a hybrid environment because we do have workloads in the cloud where we use cloud service providers and we do have some on-premise work as well. And I think as long as all these pieces are operating at their maximum effectiveness, right? That's what ultimately the leadership cares about is our ability to continue to carry on the mission. So there wasn't any sort of a concern or, or scared um, elements. However, I will tell you certainly the transition into uh, virtual conferencing, right? So I, I will tell you as a the former CISO, right? I, I, I was the one that was like, well, do we really want to open this up to everybody to help out external parties? Uh, that's not part of the DOJ community. How do we feel about that? So I was part of that group of hand-wringing people, right? 
until the time came when it's like, no, we got to go. Mission needs to continue. So we moved. And again, this goes back to my earlier point about the speed. We had to move. We had to move fast. And then it became, what do we do? What can we do to make sure we address the security concerns and what compensating controls can we put in place to mitigate the risk? It's all about risk management at the end of the day. We're still going to go down the path of risk management, but I, I, I like the the urgency versus the maybe overarching concern of security and how to find that right balance. Was there anything new, different? Did, did, was it was it just a matter of of what that really drove you to, to achieve the balance and beyond the fact we have urgency? My personal philosophy has always been it has to be about maximizing operational availability while maintaining security. It can't be security for security's sake. Even when I was the CISO, that's been my mantra because that I, I personally hated seeing operations and security go head to head because it is not a trade-off. Both have to happen. And I think with the overnight change and posture forced the two sides to all of a sudden work together because all of a sudden the ops guys are saying, oh my God, we're going all open. Are we going to be okay? They can't blame the security people for holding them back anymore because security saying go. So I think it was actually a great coming together moment, believe it or not, where the entire community came together and figured out how do we ensure that our mission folks are able to do what they need to do, whether it's the law enforcement agents on the street or the prosecutors going into the courthouse, how do we keep them going? And let's set aside our philosophical differences of you know operations versus security and just make things happen. It's funny, we still talk about these philosophical differences even now, even though technology is so much part of our lives, everything we do is technology-based, yet you still have that, as you said, um, there's some headbutting that happens at times. Melinda, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'm gonna get into that risk conversation and the data that drives that risk conversation. But first, we'll take a break. My guest is Melinda Rogers, the Justice Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. Here's Dr. George Duchok, the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency on MythBuster. Innovation and security can happen in tandem. Sponsored by ServiceNow and Microsoft. I really think that uh, what we did before isn't going to be what we're going to be doing in the future. I think there will be much more telework and much more uh, access to it. And I think largely because we have to compete for the same talent with the private sector. Listen to the entire discussion on Federal News Network. Search ServiceNow. Incredible things can happen when technology companies build platforms that recognize digital transformation as a priority for government agencies. ServiceNow and Microsoft share this approach, making it easier to improve experiences for the people you serve while maintaining security and compliance. Unlock the power of true digital transformation for organizations and government agencies. To learn more, visit your.servicenow.com slash government. That's your.servicenow.com slash government. Here's Wade Whitmer from FEMA on the Federal Executive Forum on Emergency Communications and Public Safety Strategies, sponsored by Comscope. We began receiving phone calls in March before most of the shutdowns happened for alerting authorities looking for advice and guidance to use it for the emergency that the uh, pandemic became. I think with that comfort level, that just continued to grow. To listen to the whole program from Treza Media Group, log on to federalnewsnetwork.com, search Federal Executive Forum. 
From a simple switch to 5G connectivity, solving federal networking challenges has never been easier with Comscope. We understand federal networks demand agility, reliability, and security to protect and serve our citizens. Whether the connection is wired, Wi-Fi, cellular, or all three at once, Comscope pushes what's possible, delivering superior network performance in any environment. Go to comscope.com federal to learn how our innovations help you achieve your mission. Geico presents Motorcycle Word of the Day. Today's word is tank slapper. Is a tank slapper used to describe a handlebar wobble? Or is it a motorcycle joke that is so funny you just have to slap the gas tank with your hand as you laugh? As in... Oh, man, Daryl told me a great joke last night. It was hilarious. It was something about a dog wearing sunglasses. I wish I could remember. It was a real tank slapper. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. From PR to paid programs, learn what marketing is working for government contractors. Federal News Network. Search Amtower Off-Center. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Melinda Rogers, the Justice Department's Chief Information Officer. Now, Melinda, before break, we're talking a little bit about how the last year, year and a half or so has really changed the way the Justice Department looks at cybersecurity how during the pandemic specifically, you had to make some decisions and those decisions were based on what, what risk posture you're comfortable with and, and the data driving that risk posture. So uh, that's where I wanna start for this segment. How did you make those risk decisions? What data played into that? Help me understand those pieces and parts and how they fit together to ensure the mission and the operations and the security were all not butting heads. I'll give you an example, virtual conferencing platform. Uh, Back in March, we still had many different varieties out there. We still do today, but at the the end of the day, we are now keyed off of two primary systems. One, you know, option, the primary option. And then if the primary doesn't work, you got to have a plan B. So that's how we've defaulted to our position, uh, our current position. But back then, it was uh, a lot of components dealing with, let's say, U.S. courts, then they use one platform, FBI preferred a different platform, and then we have another component using a different platform. And overnight, we at the department level, from a cybersecurity perspective, had to say, we're going to allow for communication on all five or six of the platforms that were used by all different components. And part of that was quick decision-making based on information that we had, have we seen any vulnerabilities associated with these platforms? No. Are there other concerns that might uh, uh, somehow impede our ability to open these channels up? No. Do we have full visibility? Partial, but we feel like what we have is enough. And we, at the end of the day, didn't have that much time. And it was a matter of go, no, go. So we said go and we watch like a hawk, right? We look for anomalies, we look for traffic, we get the JSOC staffed up our Justice Security Operations Center to make sure that everybody is on full alert and uh, they're, they're doing that remotely. So while everybody, the pandemic happened, we were still, we allowed our security operations folks to do the monitoring remotely as well. So it was a matter of all hands on deck. And in terms of the risk management approach, it is definitely not a one size fits all. It depends on the request that's coming in. It depends on the case that we're looking at. And we have to look at the factors, whether it's the connection, the visibility, the potential threat factor, any other blind spots that may keep us awake at night. All those come into play and they're invariably different 
from case to case to case. So it was a lot of real-time decision-making, risk analysis, compensating controls, move at, moving out on our decision and having good monitoring in place. You mentioned the Security Operations Center. The, the one thing I've heard from folks in the cyber security community is those first six months or nine months was just an all out sprint behind a marathon, right? It wasn't gonna end anytime soon. At some point you, you started to have to make some decisions to say, as you mentioned, we had five or six platforms. We said, go, no, go decision. Now you have two, one primary, one kind of backup. At what point did that kind of decision-making happen, whether it's for the virtual conference platforms or, or any other security decision? At what point did you, were you able to take that half a step back and, and really look at the risk factors in a different way? I will tell you over the last several years, as we at Justice and the department level look to streamline and standardize a lot of our uh, commodity services, commodity IT services, starting with email and collaboration platform, right? That's one area where at the end of the day, if we're an organization of 160,000 people, ideally we'd like to be able to use one platform to be able to communicate with everybody instead of six or 10 different platforms, right? It can be, become quite onerous trying to support all, all these versions. So the vision had always been to standardize and to get that number down to one is a perfect number, but one sometimes is not ideal, so it's two. So that's been our posture all along. So when we had to transition overnight to a maximum telework environment, we knew we had to open up wide aways to allow for all these different varieties. And over time, as we stopped saying no to the different people wanting the different versions, we started to get a sense of what the volume and the demand is for the different versions. And that's how we eventually sort of organically converged onto, I would say, two solutions today. Sometimes it's solution A for component, um, for this component and solution B, you know, the priorities one and two for these two products and it's the opposite for another component. But at the end of the day, we are now converged through the passage of time on a couple of solutions that have been fail safe that we all work well with that we have our network operations team well-tuned to know what to look for when things aren't going as well as they should, right? They know how to troubleshoot. They know how to keep, get things back up running quickly. So that's how we were able to converge over time. But initially, under that initial, the, uh, the pressure, it was, we need to just open, we need to let mission continue, and we have to figure out how we potentially clean up afterwards. The virtual conferencing platform is a great example, but there's other risks that you had to deal with at the same time and the data that drove those risks. Do you feel like you're already managing from a risk management perspective? I know there's the NIST cybersecurity framework and it tells you where you're at in it. So, so I guess maybe that should start there. Where were you in that risk management framework to begin with? And then how did that kind of lead you down a path to make better decisions? This is the part where I get to brag a little bit about our cybersecurity program. We are in a position where we've deployed, we deployed this asset management solution across the entire enterprise, touching all the endpoints. We did that actually years ago from my predecessor and I inherited it and passed it down too. So we've relied on that information over time to give us insight into how many servers do we have across the landscape? How many laptops do we have? How many versions of out of support software might still be lingering and which on which boxes are they lingering? It gave us that visibility and it's data. It is not, that information was not retrieved by data calls. And, and we, we, you know, in the government, we do a lot of data calls, right? But we've also sort of, you know, tongue in cheekly poke at some of the data that comes in from the data calls. It's like, what do you want to know? How do you want it answer? But in this case, because we use 
machine generated information, it's all in zeros and ones. The patch is either there or it's not, right? So we get that visibility in real time at any point in time on where we are in good shape and where we might have some soft spots. In an organization our size, I can't, nobody can say they're perfect, right? If you're perfect, then you're probably not running your mission because everything is so tightly buttoned down. So the objective here is how do you achieve that intelligence, which is something that we're in a position to say we do have good visibility across the entire organization and covering all 40 plus components. Is it perfect? No. Please don't think that I'm saying we have perfect visibility, but we have solid, good visibility that gives us enough intelligence to make some of those risk-based decisions. And during the pandemic that over last year, really, that intelligence, was that able to lead you to make some decisions that in the end would make you obviously safer, but also addressed some of those mission critical areas of, okay, can we give access to this data? Or can we give access to this application to this group of mission owners? I will tell you that the intelligence we get from the agents that we have on all the endpoints and the assets, that has allowed us to certainly respond to the binding operational directives that come from DHS very quickly. We're able, as soon as those come out, we know we can tell you where where those assets are aggregated, where that we where do we seem to have a concentration of those boxes. And as those patches are applied, or if we were as we work down those vulnerabilities, we're able to see that coming down. So it's not just trusting, but we're able to verify. So I think that's been where that insight, that near real-time insight has been most beneficial in being able to look across the board, whether it's a it's a top-down order from OMB and DHS, or if it's a matter of us just looking across the board and say, as we position ourselves to transition from, let's say, service A to service B, where do we have residual um, machines that need to be cleaned up? So that has given us that flexibility to, to operate that way. And we know that flexibility was very key earlier in this year when when agencies dealt with solar winds, with the Pulse Secure VPN, with the Microsoft Exchange, all those different... Yep. Uh, yes. directives from not just CISA, but also the, the threats. Did those events that you had to deal with back earlier this year in 2021, how did that experience from 2020 kind of set you up to be more successful? Sure. That asset information, uh, that continues to be a cornerstone of our program because cybersecurity at any point in time is about knowing who's on your what's on your network and who's on your network. So we have that and that continues to be uh, play a critical role in how we operate and knowing what we're operating. Setting that aside, the solar winds uh, attack was a very specific situation, and it does not take away from the program strength that we have. I think certainly having been affected by solar winds, the uh, the specific bad actor that initiated the attack has given us the opportunity to look and pursue more aggressively our new way of structuring ourselves. We have good programmatics in place. We have been looking at, and I'll go ahead and jump at the gun and say this, been looking at uh, moving to a zero trust architecture. We have been looking at that really since 2017, sort of poking around at the periphery and figuring out how do we work this, right? So certainly the incident itself has given us, I hate to say this, let no uh, exploit go unexploited, right? It's given us the opportunity to push hard in evolving our framework, but we still have a solid program today. Now we're looking at how do we continue to move 
forward and learn from the lessons of the attack and again, build our environment in a way that allows us to safeguard our information without compromising the user experience. We will definitely talk a lot about Zero Trust probably in the next segment because we're just about up on a break before we jump into a break. Are you able to offer anything more about the impact of solar winds or the other recent threats just in the sense of, of not who did they impact or what did they impact, but how did it kind of make you take a half a step back and beyond Zero Trust rethink what's going on with cybersecurity within justice? So with SolarWinds specifically, especially with the Department of Justice, it, it, there's, it, there's, there's continuing investigation, so I don't want to go too much into it. I, I just want to emphasize that we have a good program in place and I, and I stand by it. I think certainly the identity management piece, knowing who's on your network, that I think has, and that there's opportunity for at least for us to uh, continue to do better in that arena. And I know some of the tools coming in from the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program and other things, and we'll talk about Zero Trust next, all kind of will make that much better. And, and so Melinda, let's take a quick break. We come back, we're going to talk all about Zero Trust in the next segment. But first, my guest today is Melinda Rogers, the Justice Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. What does it mean to put mission first? Threats from unmanned aircraft systems evolve every day, putting our national security at risk. Around the globe, drones pose significant threats in protecting people and places. For decades, CACI has deployed technology that detects, tracks, and defeats the threat from drones of any kind. And our modular systems offer flexibility to defend any environment. So what does mission first mean? Mission first means CACI. Visit us at CACI.com. I answered the call. I moved with a purpose. Out here, it's no different. My mission has changed, but my purpose remains. American Military University, they get it. Founded by a veteran to educate those who serve, the faculty knows where I'm coming from and where I want to go. They've got my six from enrollment to graduation. My education is helping me move forward with career-relevant knowledge and skills for a better tomorrow. With AMU, my mission is clear. Start your next mission. Go to amuonline.com veterans and apply today. What's next for IT modernization and digital transformation within the U.S. federal government? How can federal technology transform the lives of citizens? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Maria Rote, Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer with the Office of Management and Budget, next week on the Business of Government Hour. Here's Rear Admiral Michael Ryan, the commander of the U.S. Coast Guard Cyber Command on Federal Insights, sponsored by Cloudera. You know, whether it's malicious enterprise, uh, the novel hacker, or potentially nation state, you know, the Coast Guard is going to continue to grow into our new cyber strategic outlook and bring the tools and capabilities to bear that put us on par with the other services. Listen to the entire discussion on Federal News Network. Search Cloudera. Data travels at the speed of light, moving past us in every direction. It's easy to feel overwhelmed in the chaos of it all, but what if you could take it all in, refocus it, filter it, direct it? What would you discover? Something profound? Something beautiful? Something that moves you? The right data moves leaders and organizations to bring their vision to life. Cloudera, data that moves you. Visit cloudera.com slash public sector to learn more. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
My guest today is Melinda Rogers, the Justice Department's Chief Information Officer. Melinda, before break, we were uh, talking about some of the challenges around cybersecurity. You mentioned the term zero trust. Of course you did. That's, that is the buzz of going across the federal community. So let's just start there. Discuss your agency's move toward the zero trust architecture where you're at in the process. This is an area where we started to look at back a couple of years ago, certainly in this day, in today's uh, environment and with the executive order that's come out, we are accelerating our timeline in terms of adoption. But Jason, I, one thing I do want to emphasize a key element of how we here at Justice work is before we sort of wholesale, just say, we're going to go this way, even if it's for the zero trust approach, it's important for us to socialize any particular notion, especially pretty big architectural evolution here with our component constituents. We have IT uh, representatives, CIOs at these various bureaus. And what we've done so far is outlined at least a proposal of what we'd like to do, uh, socialized it with our community. We're now in the process of getting feedback from them in terms of either things to consider, what might work, what might not work, challenges. We wanna make sure we get all of that out on the table as early as possible so that we're not all the way down in designing and implementing and then we find out something doesn't work. So this is very much a community effort, if you will. And we do have great supporters at the components, U.S. Marshals, U.S. Attorneys. I think they're very excited about this as well. Certainly not trying to put words in their mouth, but the impression is that um, we will have good partners in them in helping us refine the approach. So that's, that's the stage that we're at. And with an organization the size of the Department of Justice, there's no way we can just, you know, sort of go in and do everything all in day one. We've got to find a way to do pilots, get some lessons learned that way, and also get some quick wins that way so that we can do better as we roll out the initiative across the entire organization. And then we look forward to working with some of those components to help us with that effort, which is to Let's try this out. Let's see if it works. Let's make sure it works. Let's make sure the user experience is, is optimized and it's not adversely affected. I think there's certainly excitement, but we are not about just chasing the shiny new toy. It's got to work. We've got to show the return on investment and we've got to be able to show the goods behind it. So uh, I am very excited. We're, we're still early on that adoption front, but all indication is that uh, we have a good group of uh, IT CIOs that are supportive of us approaching this architecture. But again, I think they're only, they're supporting us as long as we take their input and um, feedback into consideration. That's a key part of how we operate, which is we, we don't go at this alone. We've got to go on, go at this as a village. When we talk about zero trust, we know that's not a product. You're not going to hire a vendor to, to come give you zero trust. Have you done that, if you will, gap analysis to say, we believe when we talk about the entire zero trust architecture, we already have 20% in place or 80% in place, whatever that, have you done that analysis yet? In terms of, uh, I, I would not go down personally, I'm not going to go down the path of the percentages part, but I will tell you the pillars that we're focusing on, certainly the managing the device element, knowing which laptop or which phone is trying to access which piece, which application, getting the, the asset piece locked down, that's gonna be one major pillar. A second pillar is the identity piece. Today, we obviously have 40 plus components, each managing the users that are coming and going, but we have to have a way across the enterprise to unify the digital identities that exist in our organizations and be able to decipher who has 
access to what and who is authorized to what level of access. Melinda Rogers could be a general user for this application, but could be an administrative user for another application. And we've got to be able to get down to that level of granularity. Historically, we've relied on the trust notion of, let's say component A versus component B. They're all part of the Department of Justice network, which is trust the network. And I think today, especially given like you mentioned earlier, uh, lessons learned from the solar winds attack, we have to be very diligent about getting down to the people, which can be a bear for an organization that's our size, but it, we got to do it. So the second pillar is identity. And then the third pillar is automating our endpoint detection and response capability. We have had different versions of capability or levels of capability exist throughout our organization. I would say going back even probably about four or five years, we've deployed it, but probably not to the full extent of the entire organization standardizing on uh, one solution. Ideally, if we can standardize on one or two versions of that, that will help the security operations center certainly be that much more effective and efficient uh, if there is an incident uh, that occurred to be able to know how to address that specific box that's breached or um, how do we take that offline or um, that's where standardization comes in. We don't want five or six different versions of this stuff floating around out there. Right? So to the degree that we can standardize, be able to act quickly, contain quickly, that's going to be our objective. So those are the three pillars, the zero trust broker, the asset, the device at the device management level, identity management, and uh, automating incident response. So I know a lot of vendors listen to my show. I'll ask the question and you'll put this in a direction. Do you expect RFPs, RFIs? Do you expect some sort of acquisition strategy around all some of one of these pieces yet? Or don't you know yet? Yes. <laughs> Definitely all of the above. That's part of what the, the this collaboration you're working with. Absolutely, the... right. It's not a one size fits all and we're a large organization. And as much as, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of the number one, I know one is not realistic. So what's one, what is it two, is it three? And who, and what's the construct of the one, two and three? I think that's, that's all where we need the community to work together because at the end of the day, the FBO works closely with US attorneys and they work with criminal division attorneys and you have really the collaboration that's, constantly going on and each environment is different, each mission is different, but at the end of the day, we've got to be able to operate off of that common denominator. So how do we get to that common denominator? That's that's what we're in the middle of. You also mentioned pilots, which again, go hand in hand maybe with some of this acquisition strategy piece. Do you have an idea yet without maybe telling us everything, where those pilots will be or what maybe the pilots were a little more mature in one area over another? Is there any more details you're able to provide that you're given the sensitivity of the of the topic? Right now, we are piloting, using, leveraging the zero trust broker model for some of our remote access. It, we, again, it's, it's a, I would say, pretty relatively small pilot. It's primarily for those of us that are within my immediate office. We do have in a couple of different components that are interested in piloting their use case, which will be a little bit different from ours, but from a remote access that seems to, for us right now, seems to be sort of the lowest hanging fruit that we could do some quick tests on. And then um, my objective right now without, you know, getting into the specific vendor or components, it's about use cases that sort of covers everybody, remote access, it covers everybody, right? But it's also one where if it doesn't work, you have the office as an option because we are, you know, Folks are able, you know, a lot of folks are vaccinated. Some people are going back into the office. I'm not, I'm not, this is not forcing anything, but just that it's an option that we're testing. And I look forward to continuing to work with our components to 
provide those different use cases that I may not think of sitting where I'm sitting, but they're on the front lines. And that's where we need to make sure this stuff works because it's ultimately about the frontline mission uh, operators. Well, thank you for that. It's, it's always nice to hear. I think people will be very excited to know that the CIO's office is the first to try this out. And if it works great, if it doesn't, you, you can feel that pain because so well, many times- I, I got to quote my old uh, mentor, uh, Luke McCormack, I got to drink my own champagne first. I'm glad you didn't say eat my own dog food. So thank I you. I was, I know. See, he taught me to drink the champagne. I thought that's more appropriate. Yes. That's more appropriate. You want to, you want to do that. You bring up endpoint detection response, big focus from the, the Biden administration, specifically regarding that from the executive order. What is the challenge around endpoint detection response, not just for you at Justice, but more generally, this is seems to be a very key piece for all agencies, but also maybe a, a difficult piece. And, and maybe you've all have partially overcome it because you have that asset management piece in place already. Well, we have asset management, which gives us great intelligence, great insight. So setting that aside, I think finding a provider that can scale at the degree that we need to scale, that's been a challenge for us. I will tell you, we haven't had it proven out yet. So I think finding a solution that is scalable is going to be key. And going back to the standardization uh, concept that I mentioned, it's not trying to take over everybody's devices, but rather to the degree that we can standardize, then when an alert comes in, your security operations center that's 24 seven, they know what this alert means and what that alert means rather than having to go through five or six different playbooks to figure out, oh, in this, in this vendor, it means this, but in that vendor, it means that minus this, right? It just, you lose time trying to figure out the different levels of nuances. So to the degree that we can converge on a couple of different, a couple of solutions or one that will help us be able to respond faster. Again, like I said, I, I'm a fan of one, but I'm not, I also know that the pragmatic challenges of having one. So I think to the degree that we can streamline that, finding a solution that's scalable, we're finding a couple of solutions that are scalable, that allows us to do this at the enterprise level. I think information sharing is one of the basic tenets of cybersecurity, right? So it's not just about the Justice Security Operations Center, but as we see alerts come in, how do we get in touch with the component IT offices to make sure that uh, they've got boots on the ground to work the actual incident? Certainly the automation piece will allow us to maybe take a, a an effective box offline, but what happens after that, that still requires a lot of close coordination with the local component offices working with the department to make sure that we cover the incident or event from all possible angles. All right, much more to come around Zero Trust. I'm sure we'll hear much more about it in the future. I'm willing to, let's take a quick break. We come back, we can uh, finish up our conversation, maybe talk about something else besides cybersecurity. My guest today is Melinda Rogers, the Justice Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. What's best for you and your federal career, and what comes next? Your turn with Mike Causey. Search your turn. COVID-19 is impacting the world and changing the face of healthcare. Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter welcomes the greatest minds in health policy, technology, and innovation from Dr. Anthony Fauci. There are going to be more than one vaccine that's going to be approved by the FDA. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. If we really want to get treatment right, we've got to integrate it with primary care. We're bringing these experts straight to you Saturday and Sunday mornings at 8.30 on the Federal News Network. Conversations on Healthcare is a production of Community Health Center, Inc. Cybersecurity threats are happening in every industry. 
But when it happens to you, it's your mission at stake. As bad actors become more brazen in their attacks and methods evolve, it's time for a new approach to securing critical networks. Lidos is helping government agencies like yours modernize their approach to cybersecurity, staying one step ahead of even the most advanced persistent threats. Visit Lidos.com secure to learn more. That's L-E-I-D-O-S dot secure. C3 AI is solving previously unsolvable problems in mission-critical defense and intelligence challenges. Learn more at C3.ai. C3 AI. This is Enterprise AI. General Dynamics Information Technology accelerates the power of digital modernization from expanding the reach of intelligence with AI to driving cloud clarity to making today secure and tomorrow smarter with cyber. Learn more at GDIT.com. Federal News Network. Hi, this is Sean Kelly, host of CyberChat. As a former federal CIO and CISO, I can tell you the threat landscape is a dynamic and evolving matter. My conversations with federal leaders from across the government focus on the latest trends and hottest cyber topics and challenges. Join me for a high-level conversation about how agencies maintain mission security. Tune in Friday mornings at 1030 on Federal News Network or subscribe on iTunes and Podcast One. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Melinda Rogers, the Justice Department's Chief Information Officer. Melinda, we've spent the, most of the show talking about cybersecurity and all the work you're doing. We spent the last segment around zero trust. I know there's other things on your plate. There are other things you're trying to get done, even though cybersecurity is priority maybe number one or, or, or 1B. What else is on your plate? What do you hope to accomplish over the next six or nine months? Workforce development and augmentation, staffing up, I think certainly with the work that we've outlined on the zero trust model, unifying our identity management approach, deploying endpoint detection automation, all of that requires some level of human element behind it. And I know that as an IT person, my goal is to automate as much as possible and turn things over to the machine and take the humans out of it. But before we get to that, we have a great body of work ahead of us. We cannot be successful without getting the smart, talented individuals in to help stand up the effort. And uh, Jason, I'm going to shamelessly use this as a platform to recruit for individuals out there to come work for the Department of Justice. We have an exciting mission, and especially on the cybersecurity front, there is no shortage of work looking for critical thinkers, problem solvers. I know they sound cliche, but those are key elements at the end of the day. It's actually less so about what certifications one has, although they you know, always help, but at the end of the day, are you able to self-start? And are you able to initiate? Are you able to outline what the problem statement is and what the solutions should be? That's what we're looking for. We have lots of uh, uh, challenges, and but they're all fun, good problems that can be really satisfying to solve. But I think being able to bring resources in effectively and quickly, that's going to be something we're uh, going to continue to work towards. And there's going to be no shortage of challenge on that front, that's for sure. And the folks you're trying to recruit are not just cyber. It's all over the place. It's IT project management, it's data, it's cyber, it's all of the above. It's all of the above. And I have to be able to reach these people hopefully easily. And at the end of the day, I mentioned earlier, it's not just about the certification. I'm looking for individuals that 
can think on their own. And a lot comes through the job interviews and also how, what they put on the resume. And then sometimes the resume doesn't quite match the person when you meet them for the interview, as you know. But at the end of the day, it's about, are they critical thinkers? I wanna hear about how they went about solving a problem because that to me is an insight into how they could potentially be an asset prospective employee for the department in helping us ultimately deliver on the mission. I'm looking for creative problem solvers. That's the job. A lot of people complain about the hiring process in the government, how long it takes. We know that someone like the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has some special hiring authorities. We know for cyber, you have direct hire authority. Does Justice have or does your office have any sort of special hiring authorities you're, you're using for this? We definitely have the direct hiring authority, and then it's the traditional process. But the reality is, I think if you look at IT, it's a high turnover industry even outside of the government, right? It's an area where new skill sets are being required. The turnover tends to be high. And also in the national capital region, you have a lot of prospective employers all vying for the same talent. And I've got to be able to find a way to break out of that and be able to attract and bring on the talent that the Department of Justice needs as well. So certainly through direct hire is beneficial. That's tied to cyber. But the reality is, 10 years ago, you might be able to make the distinction between hiring somebody for cyber versus hiring somebody for traditional IT, but there is no traditional IT without cyber anymore. So I've got to be able to do that. And, you know, I'll, I'll pivot into, let's say, financial management. You might think, what does an accountant have to do with any of this stuff? We're buying a lot of software licenses. We're buying hardware. We're putting in contractor services. We're deploying projects. I actually good money, I need good money people to help me account for the return on my investments, right? Like a good business person, I can't just spend the money. I have to be able to articulate what return did we get? And I need good financial management people to help articulate the story, not just from a cyber perspective, but also from the overall CIO office. These are the investments we've made over time. This is how we are able to either safeguard our environment or produce better delivery results or produce better operational services for our constituents. So it, it takes all these, all of these different functional areas. So the hiring challenge and need is not gonna go away anytime soon. And as much as I like to say, yes, I want cyber folks, it's gotta be uh, cyber plus IT, plus data, plus critical thinkers, plus problem solvers, plus financial managers. I, I need them all. And one last piece on this about hiring. Do you know how many people you're trying to hire? Meaning do you have uh, open billets or is there some sort of ratio you wanna to get to from contractors to federal employees? You're trying to kind of bring that ratio closer together. Yes, I have lots of open billets. Okay. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I will tell you that I have a lot of, I do have a lot of Fed vacancies that I love to fill, but contractors, they work side by side with us. I am not one that says, oh, this is a Fed versus a contractors. Yes, there are certain functions that are inherently governmental. It just is. But at the end of the day, I rely very heavily on our contractor support because that they're the ones that help me bridge the gap when I'm not able to bring in the people uh, as a fit as fast as I need them to. Right. And um, sometimes I get the smarter, uh, the smart SMEs through the contractor services. I shouldn't say smarter, but the smart ones, because they're, I, I could, I could reach a contractor service for a spot project where I say, I need this uh, specialized skill set for just a 12 month time period. And I have the ability to sort of dip in and out that way. Certainly, we will always need government, a good Fed to 
uh, act as stewards of our taxpayer dollars, make sure that the contractors support are delivering the services that we need and that we hold everybody accountable for the dollars that we spend. One other piece of from a priority perspective, and we've talked a little bit about it, is, is around IT modernization. We know that the Technology Modernization Fund, everyone loves to talk about the TMF and the billion dollars it received. So, so I'll kind of throw more of a broader question to you. What are some of those ideas? What are some of those things you're doing around, whether it's application modernization or rationalization? What are you doing around uh, other IT modernization, if you will, pieces and parts for the Justice Department over the next six or nine months? In terms of modernization effort, I, that's really ongoing. And I would say, Jason, that's really what saved our bacon in the first place. We we didn't just sort of wait for something to get really old and then we try to do something about it. The reality is DOJ and all of our components have been upgrading and modernizing over time so that when it came down to that pivotal March 2020 time period, we were able to make that switch. The application rationalization project, we actually do have something that's being uh, driven out of our CTO's office today that is looking at applications we have across the department and to what degree we can standardize them or move those workloads into the cloud or should they potentially go to one of our data centers that might be in Clarksburg or in Pocatello, for example. So we're looking at those. That's ongoing work that's happening. Melinda, I love talking to you. This has been a great conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. So let me thank my guest. Melinda Rogers is the Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Chief Information Officer at the Justice Department. Melinda, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO, sponsored by Menlo Security on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Download the Federal News Network app and take the news that matters to you and your agency's mission on the go. Download the app to find out what each new law and policy will mean for civilian and defense employees and contractors. Download the app to keep up with cybersecurity and technology changes. Download the app to learn about changes to your pay and benefits. The Federal News Network app, sponsored by WEPA. WEPA, group term life insurance for feds by feds. Here's Sanjay Gupta from the Small Business Administration on the Federal Executive Forum on Data Analytics at the Edge, sponsored by Intel. We've increasingly been relying on prescriptive and predictive analytics, meaning specifically we're using algorithm-based decision support systems for our credit processing, credit risk monitoring, some of the other loan programs, and being able to leverage data in a more rich and a more holistic manner. To listen to the whole program from Treza Media Group, log on to federalnewsnetwork.com, search Federal Executive forum. Intel works together with Dell to simplify and accelerate AI deployment in public sector from creating a reference architecture for data robot to optimizing H2O.AI on Dell EMC infrastructure. This technology partnership helps to optimize AI deployments for real-world performance and scalability. In the cloud and in the data center, Intel and Dell deliver the power of AI to more agencies and organizations than ever before. To learn more, visit DellTechnologies.com slash machine learning. 
For 15 years, the federal community of government managers, executives, appointees, and contractors has started its day with me, Tom Temin, host of The Federal Drive, our daily program of the latest headlines and interviews with people behind the news, your go-to source for information about everything from IT to pay and benefits. Be informed, stay informed. Start your morning with me, Tom Temin, on The Federal Drive. Listen on air on the Federal News Network app and on Spotify. Ask the CIO, Federal News Network's longest-running program. Make sense of the complex world of federal IT. AskTheCIO.com. WFED Washington. WTOP-FM HD2 Washington. W283DG Sterling. WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Portions pre-recorded. Federal News Network.